The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and an organization called Renew led a track called Renewing the Teaching of Jesus for Disciple Making. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. Now here's today's track session. So we decided just, that uh, David and I did, that a conversation kind of interview slash style would be uh, really helpful for this topic and for the time that we have a lot. Before we get into it, we're going to start off with an overview of progressive Christianity. But before we do, let's do popcorn style. Just one key principle takeaway that uh, you've learned from the conference that you're going to be taking home with you. A little bit rapid fire. Somebody kick us off. Fast. Say? Fast. Fast. Good. Prayer and fasting. Yeah, prayer and fasting. Oh, that kind of fast. (laughs) But he wants fast. (laughs) Love. Love. Relationships. Good. Objectives. Okay. Holy Spirit led. Spirit led. Community. Community. Just get two more. Intentional. Intentional. I've been casual, but I don't want to be a casualty. Uh, oh, yeah. Good. Somebody should tweet that. Shazante. <laughs> so, uh, we will kick off, and I think it's helpful just to frame the conversation. David wrote the book, and that's not just, uh, we're not just kidding around. Uh, if you want to uh, find more resources following this, you want to visit Renew.org. A lot of reasons, and we'll talk about those. But one of them being, uh, David Young here did also write a book called A Grand Illusion on this topic. So a lot, we'll reference it, but really more information will be found there. It will be helpful to you as you go forward. Uh, so David, who did write the book, give us an overview of progressive Christianity to start. Well, Bobby asked me to read this. Bobby asked me to... It's, it's free. Can yes. say, yeah, yeah. So if you go to Renew.org, you can download their 12 different e-books there okay. that are available for you to download, blogs, uh, and uh, Jason, all kinds of stuff. Podcasts, yeah, a lot of resources. Podcasts, yeah. A lot of resources are going out. Uh, Renew.org has the mission of renewing the teachings of Jesus for the purpose of making disciples. <laughs> And so uh, this book that I'll be referencing is a free download. All you have to do is uh, register it, you get the book, and there's a lot of really good, I mean, fantastic resources available. So um, an overview. Well, uh, wow. Was that supposed to be our first question? It's what's on the page. Okay. Didn't know anymore. Okay. I, I believe that there are two emerging camps of Christianity in North America. So I'm going to largely talk about North American Christianity. One of them is um, a form of of, uh, what I'm going to call apostolic Christianity. And by apostolic, I mean um, an effort to follow scripture, a respect for the main traditions of the Christian faith, historic Christianity. And I would include that, in that I would include a fairly broad stream. That, on the one hand, um, is uh, sort of a mainstream in American Christianity. On the other hand is what we're calling progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is sort of a North American phenomenon. It's actually a real thing. And uh, we know the dates of it. We know when it started. We know its major habits and so forth. Uh, And progressive Christianity is essentially defined as an approach to Christianity that seeks to accommodate the American ideology of progress. 
And so North Americans are obsessed with progress, mm -hmm. that the world is progressing, uh, values are progressing, uh, ethics are progressing, uh, social structures are progressing. And so in progressivism, the, the idea is that um, that we should accommodate the Christian faith to support the progress that we experience around us. And so obviously you know which camp we're going to end up in. But if you wanted to if you wanted to describe each of them in the most generous of terms, I would use this model. The uh, Orthodox Christianity tends to look back to the apostles and the, uh, the, the teachings they bequeathed us in scripture, as, long, uh, as well as the great doctors of the faith, you know, the Aquinas and Augustans and so forth, as well as the great creeds and that mainstream tradition. So um, Orthodox Christianity or apostolic will look back and see that as sort of a fixed set of truths. Progressive Christianity will generally say that the, the scriptures give us a trajectory, they point us in the right direction, they give us the right role model, Jesus. But scriptures are open-ended. And that what we ought to do is take some of the, the best principles of scripture, the best principles of apostolic Christianity, and then we ought to adapt those and, uh, and, and so, sort of allow our own uh, intuition, our own, our own experiences, to make the best of those for whatever context we find ourselves in. If you use the phrase kingdom of God, this is actually a good model. So for apostolic Christianity, the kingdom of God is something Jesus wants us all delivered. Now we live in it expecting its consummation. In progressive Christianity, the kingdom of God is something we're building. Uh, in progressive Christianity, we build the kingdom, and we build it through um, our, our own projects, through public policy, uh, through social change, uh, and we build it with a very optimistic view of what we're able to accomplish. And you know, when you when you put both of them in positive language, both of them actually have something. That, both of them are attractive, really, when you put them in positive language. But obviously, what we believe is that the the end result of progressive Christianity, and we'll make this argument today, is really destructive. And so we'll get a chance to talk about it. That's helpful for the framing of the conversation. Just so everybody's aware, uh, David Young, senior pastor, he preaches at North Boulevard, where uh, I'm a campus minister. But there's also another aspect to our relationship. Uh, he's a personal disciple of mine, and in both realms, you have warned against progressive Christianity. So we're going to move in a second to the tenets of progressive Christianity, kind of the makeup and what characteristics we find in it. But it's already evident just by hosting this uh, workshop. There's something in it that's worth defending. And there's something that we need to take notice of to, to be able to protect the sheep from. And uh, so we're going to unpack that in a little bit. But I just want to frame the relationship that we have and how he's gone about it. And that some of that will come out. But what are the makeup? What's the makeup? What are the tenets of progressive Christianity? Um, one of the best, if you if you want to dig down deep into the history of progressive Christianity, a couple of things to know. First of all, the, the, be, the best book is a three-volume set by Gary Dorian, and it's called, uh, I know the name, and I've worked through the books, and it'll come to me. If you Google Gary Dorian, liberal Christianity, you'll get the story. Because Dorian's a, a, an expert historian, and he's friendly to um, progressivism, so you, you'll get uh, kind of a fair telling of it from his perspective. So progressivism really started uh, in North America, believe it or not. And it started largely so, now, so when I say this language, um, we want to be, we want to be, um, 
we want to speak with conviction, but we also want to speak with great respect. So if I say something and it sounds disrespectful, I'd be happy for you to say that didn't, I hope you didn't mean that the way I sounded. But, but we do need to recognize some things. Progressive in America was largely a white North American effort to establish a civil religion using Victorian ethics and morals. So this occurred in the latter part of the 18th century and into the 19th century. So here's what happened. On the North American continent, as the colonies were being settled, Calvinism was the main religion. As uh, elite whites began to really recoil against the dark view of humanity that Calvinism tends to have, they developed instead a very optimistic view of humanity. And they needed a religion for these colonies. And so what progressives began to do was to reinterpret the Christian faith along the lines of a good set of ethics, along the lines of social policies, along the lines of um, you know, how to be neighborly, how to have uh, the, the sort of the Victorian values that, have, that would eventually sort of define the English-speaking world. And so it was actually a deliberate project. And some of the earliest names you'll be familiar with, Channing and, uh, 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 well, I won't go into all the names. But, so these guys sat down and they said, okay, if we're to build a civic religion, then we need to begin to treat Jesus largely as a role model rather than as personally divine. Which is why early on, progressivism was Unitarian largely in theology. So Unitarianism grew up with progressivism. And it's not an accident that even today, when people began become progressive, you'll almost always hear some odd talk about Jesus. So let me give you one example of that. Uh, sometime back, Brian McLaren said, this has been several years back, that um, a problem with the atonement. So uh, McLaren would describe himself as a, a progressive, very influential progressive author and blogger and speaker, and I, I'm told a very winsome person, I haven't met him. McLaren made the statement that the atonement is a problem because in the atonement, he says, it is, and this is his language, cosmic child abuse, that God is actually punishing Jesus for what you did, and that would be child abuse, and that's why the atonement's a problem. You could only say that if you didn't believe Jesus is God. So the classic position of progressivism is, ultimately, Jesus can't be divine. And here's why. If Jesus is divine, then he makes a claim of lordship that's inconsistent with a civic religion. You can have one, or you can have the other, but you can't really have both. If Jesus is divine, then Islam is wrong. If Jesus is divine, uh, then all other forms of religious expression are wrong. So what progressivism had to do early on was to reduce Jesus from son of God to heroic role model. So Jesus is more like Gandhi, for example, or Martin Luther King in progressive religions. And that's, that's true even today. Most progressives really struggle with the idea of Jesus as divine, as the son of God. And uh, that's one reason why you have, for example, red letter Christians. So you know the name of Tony Campalo, for example, um, and several others started a movement called uh, Red Letter Christians. Jim Wallace is part of that. Shane is part of that. These are the names you might recognize. And what they're arguing with Red Letter Christians is, if we just take the things that are read in the Bible, the red print, if we just take that, we end up with a nice ethical system, a very good ethical system. But we don't have to worry about all the religious stuff, all the Son of God stuff. And so, for example, they're really big on the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful. I mean, we should all be big on the Sermon on the Mount. 
But in a lot of ways, by taking only the red letters, they have deliberately neglected the rest of the teachings about who Jesus actually is. So in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus makes divine claims. So, one of the tenets, and I'm going too long, why not, is that Jesus generally is downplayed. Unitarianism grew up with, um, with progressivism. Let's do just a couple more. So, closely connected to this is a, um, a real aversion to the doctrine of atonement. So, uh, and these are all wrapped up. Progressives, as a general rule, have a very optimistic view of humanity. So, and you don't have to be a Calvinist, by the way, to understand the sinfulness of humanity. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not against Calvinism. I'm just not one. I'm Arminian. Um, if you're a Calvinist, I love you, and we're brothers and sisters, and everything's happy, and we should date. But Calvin had, you know, this scorched earth view of human uh, nature, and you don't have to be Calvin, although Calvin frames it really nicely. But all of us know, um, I think, uh, all of us who are really trying to take Orthodox Christianity seriously, whether you're Arminian or Calvin or some other variation of that, that humans are inherently sinful. And so, uh, Orthodox Christianity, in virtually all of its forms, start with the assumption that we are irredeemable apart from Jesus. Progressivism, you need to know, once progressivism takes several steps, it no longer believes this. So progressivism generally argues humans are basically good. We're not in need of personal redemption or personal atonement. All we need is a better education. Uh, we need a more just society in which to live. Maybe a few more public policies. We need a different president, obviously. Um, progressive will argue. And by the way, I don't want to go political, but you need to know that progressivism is now, at this point, deeply tied into politics. Uh, I'll just give you one other example. So Brian McLaren is, right now, every every day he tweets something about it's time to flip Congress, uh, we need to vote a certain way. So progressivism is, because it, generally speaking, doesn't look towards the world to come, but looks only at this world, politics is incredibly important to progressives. Before you go further to that, I'm going to touch on this. Uh, <coughs> both of these are connected, as we know. Because humans are basically good, and the divinity of Jesus has been undermined, the doctrine of the atonement really takes a big hit. In a lecture, 2015, one of the leading voices for progressivism, John Shelby Spong, actually said these words, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and quote him. Uh, if you call Jesus Savior, you're defining yourself as a sinner. The only purpose of a Savior is to save that which is sinful. And I think we'd agree, but then he goes on and says, that's a negative view of humanity. So to call Jesus res Rescuer means that you are defining yourself as someone who needs to be rescued, someone who's lost. If you call Jesus Redeemer, you're def you define yourself as something like an object in a pawn shop. Someone has to come into the shop and redeem it to give it value again. So watch where he goes with this. Where did the idea come from that humans are sinful, lost, fallen? Let me suggest to you, in the whole lecture with this suggestion, that these are not realities or biblical concepts. So we continue. The Divine Father requiring the death of the Divine Son because you and I are sinful? What kind of God is this? What a strange idea. Why did God not simply forgive? That's, why, that's what any normal parent would do. God had to have a victim. Jesus is the victim. Our sins caused God to kill Jesus? Is there any gospel in such a message? Uh, why would anyone want to, to worship such a God? Uh, almost done. This theology means that you and I, because of our sinfulness, have become Christ killers. We define, by this theology, human life as evil. 
God is righteous. Jesus Christ is the rescue operation. The theology of atonement, lesson is, the theology of atonement, uh, atonement makes God a monster, Jesus a masochist, and you and I guilt-filled zombies. No wonder people are leaving the church. This is a theology that denigrates our humanity. So uh, I didn't want to go on past this point without going ahead and putting a, a voice in there. When he closes it with this theology, of course, this is the, the cross, the atonement theory denigrates humanity, what's the emphasis and what is he trying to ultimately accomplish, accomplish with this, this quote? Well, again, because the view generally is that humans are inherently good, there's no reason for us to be atoned. Systems might need to be atoned, but not humans. And um, because Jesus is not divine, he can't take your place. We have a judge sitting right back here from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Am I right, Raleigh? As, as our judge can tell you, it is not the case that you can simply forgive. Every injustice must be borne by somebody. Every injustice is borne by somebody. Every injustice is. It is borne either by the person who perpetrates it, it is borne by the person against whom it's perpetrated, or it's borne by the world. But every injustice is borne by somebody. And so what is required in order for justice to occur in the life of humanity is that somebody has to pay a price. Somebody will pay a price for every injustice. And the good news of the gospel is that God became human. Emmanuel, he took on flesh, and he bore the injustice. That's the gospel. He bore the injustice. So one of the mistakes that progressivism makes, and we're way off the charts now. One of the mistakes is the assumption that, that you can simply dismiss injustices. Uh, so uh, how, uh, I, I suspect we have a really good judge back here. Um, <laughs> if your house were broken into, so we had this happen in our, one of our dear friends. Someone broke into the house. They knew the family had broken, stole all the guns. And on the way out, just for meanness, they lit the curtains on fire and burned the house to the ground. Mm -hmm. Just for meanness. Mm -hmm. uh, so how many of you would, would be okay with a judge who says, hey, I'm a really merciful judge. It's okay. Go on. You can leave. We don't care. You see, you know that somebody had to bear the injustice there. Either the victim bears it, the perpetrator bears it, or society in general bears it. And this is one, again, I think this is one of the shortcomings of progressive Christianity. This is one reason why I argue my book, and I, I'll get attacked on this one, and maybe I deserve it. I, honestly, I deserve probably more than half the beans I get. <laughs> and so that's why I'm okay with it. Um, but as a general rule, only progressivism is a religion of white elite people. Look around you. It's a religion of white elite people. Here's why. White elite people, generally speaking, have always been on the winning side of justice. Right. Most of the world has not been on the winning side of, the ju of justice. Most of the world have, has been abused, mistreated, maligned, marginalized. For those people, the justice of God is great news. For people who are living under Sharia law in Pakistan, justice the justice of God is fantastic news because they've lived their whole life without justice. For people in the inner city, is, am I not, is it not the case? They long, they yearn for a just God. It's only people who've never had to worry about it who can dismiss the justice of God. It's not unusual this is our for me to open court and there be eight white police officers, a white prosecutor, white defense attorneys, and 90% of the people in the courtroom of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and they yearn for justice. And, and maybe some of us just thought, yeah, but, I'll go there. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So you can't figure that out except it, it is okay. So this is why we want to argue that the, the atonement matters because the atonement, there are various theories of atonement, by the way, we should acknowledge that. And some of them are a little later than the New Testament, quite a bit later, in fact. And you, I want to be careful. I, I don't, in my book, I don't posit a particular theory of atonement. There are probably five good ones. I will just say this. Every theory of atonement says, at the end of the day, if God is a just God, somebody has to pay for the crimes that we all have committed. And so what God chooses to do is to become incarnate himself, take upon himself our sins. There's another judge in North Carolina. Fantastic story. He's a veteran of the Afghan wars. He has a veteran who's come into his court with chemical abuse addictions. You may have heard this. He made the news a while back. He, he, went years jail, ago. he went to spend a night in jail. With That's the guy. Do you know this judge? So this judge, this guy has come in. He's, he's, he's had seen everything you can see in Afghanistan, every horrible thing you can see. And he's got chemical problems and suicidal and so forth. Well, the guy cheats on a urine test, passes the test, and then he, his conscience is bothering me, goes to the judge. Now, the judge is forced to make a difficult decision. You know, this is a veteran. You can hardly blame him for where he is. He saw several of his friends blown to pieces. He's got two or three purple hearts. And the judge has to make a decision. Now, what does a just judge do? He has to put him in jail. What does a merciful judge do? Well, if a merciful judge lets him go, is that the judge you want? Do you want judges who just dismiss people on their whims? So listen to what this judge does. He sentences him to a night in jail, drives him to the jail, and spends the night in jail with him. And they talk father to son all night long. That's what you're, that's what atonement is. You see, atonement isn't a judge who says, hey, I don't care who you hurt, go on. Nor is atonement going to burn you in hell. Atonement is a God who says, I'll come to jail with you, and we'll go out together. And you do need to know progressivism neglects that. Because they don't like the idea of atonement. And I'm, I'm really killing a lot of time here, sorry. I dare you to try to interview a preacher. <laughs> we have only like 14 points to go. Hey, no, number number one. Now. We have number number one. You are nailing. No, it's great. Um, let me. Let's go to this one. All right. So you talked about it, social justice or social salvation, but really not just that it would be social. It's really to the exclusion of any kind of individual or personal. It certainly diminishes personal salvation. Go into that just briefly, emphasizing briefly. So, <laughs> every injustice, someone's, yeah, someone has to bear it. I'll, okay, let me give you an illustration. So, uh, nearly 20 years ago, a, um, a priest in um, the Episcopal Church abandoned the wife he swore to live faithfully to till death do us part, and, and instead began to live with a, another man in a sexual relationship. <laughs> The Episcopal Church, not long after that, made him a bishop and celebrated the fact that he was living an authentic life. Now, you know, you may have a variety of views. There's a lot that can be talked about in this story, but here's, here's a truth. This man violated his covenant with his wife. He just did. You, whatever else you want to say, you can say what well, he had to to be authentic, whatever you want to say. In any other world, we would say of such an, a personal violation of a covenant disqualifies a person from being a pastor over God's sheep. 
But in, in what is a twisted world of progressivism, twisted was a bad word, but I think it's true. As long as he had the right social views, the right views about uh, what you name it, whatever the latest social causes are, his personal life was not relevant to them. And so this is what often happens. We have to be really careful here. My wife is a social worker. She actually wrote some of the laws for special needs adoption for the state of Tennessee. She's a master social worker. She's worked for some of the largest social uh, justice organizations. Uh, we both have. Our church has been deeply. I've been on the board of United Way. I work for social justice organizations. We, we have, we've been involved in social justice issues in no fewer than a dozen countries. This guy here. I don't know if I can. Should, can I tell your, anything about your story? Or should I just avoid it? Go for it, my friend. We are being recorded. We are. We are. We are. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. And let me just say this. He, he, he adopted because he believes in social justice in a, in a, in a really honorable way, a beautiful way. What does it say that? We are for justice, we are for mercy, and we are for ju social justice. We stand for it. But never as a replacement for salvation. That's right. That's right. Remember that acts of justice and mercy flow out of salvation. That's right. And they're not the same as salvation. So when Jesus came in, in Luke chapter 4, remember what he says. He quotes from Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Lord has anointed me to do what? He, he doesn't say the Lord has anointed me to help the poor. He said the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What was the good news? You can be saved too now. So when you listen to Shadake, Shadake Johnson, who they have 250,000 members of their movement. That's the number that we're hearing. 25,000 congregations. That's the number we're hearing. By the way, the, the stateside guy who coordinates Shadanke is a member of my church, and these are the numbers he gives me. Jerry Trousdale. They will not call their work social justice, even though they dig wells, they build schools, they have sports teams, they do all this. They only do that because they want to save souls. They want to see people come to Jesus. And so they will go dig a well in a community. The, the, the leaders of the communities will come and say, thank you. And they'll say, we did it because of Jesus. Can we tell you about Jesus? Next thing you know, 70 sheep are being baptized into Jesus. So this is, this is the kind of social justice that has lasting implications. That wasn't short, was it? It was perfect. Um, I, I got more. I know you do. Let's uh, let's do this. So just as a quick little break before we add another point here. And by the way, I mean, this really should say emphasis on, on social salvation, uh, justice. Let me let me, let me say this. In a document entitled uh, "Grassroots Progressive Christianity," there was uh, actually five characteristics of progressive Christianity listed. So I'm going to read those. And that was in 2006. And now if you were to go to progressivechristianity.org, you would see an expanded version of these five. It's really eight now on progressivechristianity.org. I have that list. It's just the language is more ambiguous in the one online. And so I'm going to rely on this from 2006 to kind of go through these. What you're seeing on the board is a bit of an observation or an interpretation of progressive Christianity. But here are right from uh, the, the, the book, Grassroots Progressive Christianity. A spiritual vitality and expressiveness, number one. Number two, an insistence on Christianity with intellectual integrity. We're going to come back to that one in a minute. That'll be the next one we'll put up. Three, a transgression of traditional gender boundaries. And underneath it, it says these groups are explicitly and thoroughly committed to feminism and affirmation of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people. Number four, the belief that Christianity can be vital without claiming to be the best or the only true religion. 
Okay, so online, that one is ex expounded a bit and says this. Um, Oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss it. Okay, uh, see community that is inclusive of all people. Number two, actually online says, affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life, and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our, in our spiritual journey. And then back to this list, number uh, five, that strong ecological and social justice uh, commitments uh, really kind of are out front. So let's go to this one. Number two, an insistence on Christianity with intellectual integrity. Right. Underneath that, you'll read this. This new kind of Christian expression is devoted to and nourished by a wide-ranging intellectual curiosity and critique. It interrogates Christian assumptions and traditions in order to reframe, reject, or renew them. So, I'm, I'm going to let you speak, but I, I just want to read this. Just to keep... All right, all right, all right, all right. So, just as we kind of see the implications of that, here's another quote. Um... And this, I think, gets to the heart of what they mean when they're talking about intellectual integrity. People know, this is uh, John Shelby Spung again in the, the lecture, Why Atonement Theology Will Kill Christianity. People know that virgins do not conceive. People know 5,000 people cannot be fed with five loaves of two fish. And yet, these stories are read in our church uh, week after week. And the people will end the reading by saying, this is the word of the Lord. So he goes on, he says, that doesn't give you much opportunity to challenge and to consider that maybe there's another way. Millennials, the quote continues, are no longer willing to put up with this. They're walking away from any religion, from religion in droves. Either you give up your religion to live in secular society, or you give up secular society to live in the ghetto of your religion. How can you be a person of faith in such a world? So we come to this church. This is, of course, where he's speaking in that, the Springfield at this lecture to this conference because we hope there's an alternative, a way of holding these two things together. There will be pain, but you and I know this can be done. So you have gathered because you believe there's a way to transform the Christian faith so that it can live in this world. Quote straight from the lecture. So let's talk about intellectual integrity as they, uh, as an observation. You and I discussed as we prepared for this that it's a bit of a compromise we're being fair, right? The compromised view of scripture is what we had uh, written. So, expound on this. Uh, so, let me tell you a story that I've told at, at the beginning of the book. In uh, 1986, I enrolled in the, uh, was accepted in the PhD program at Vanderbilt in New Testament. There were four of us admitted. Most of the students there had come from Princeton and Yale and uh, Johns Hopkins and all over the places. And I'd gone to a school that if I mentioned now, only the judge would know. <laughs> I was, it was really, actually really intimidating to go there. And uh, I, I was, there were only two people in the entire graduate department of religion that I knew of who had a, a, a high view of scripture, me and one other student. Um, and so uh, it, I was, it was really intimidating. And I learned several things. I do, I do want to put one tagline in. I became, I fell more in love with the Bible as a result of that than I could ever describe to you. But, but that's another story. Let me say this. We had, uh, I think my second or third year there, we had Charles Kingsley Barrett, C.K. Barrett come, who was at that point probably the brightest New Testament scholar in the English-speaking world. He came and he spoke to the graduate uh, students, especially the New Testament students. We'd all read his works. He was a brilliant man. Uh, he was taught at the University of Manchester in England. 
And C.K. Barrett was uh, meeting with all the New Testament students, and there were probably 15 or 20 of us at the time, and that includes the classes before me and the classes that had come after me in my class of four. And so as we're sitting there, um, we're asking all sorts of questions, and one of the students said to uh, Dr. Barrett, they said, what, what do we do? And they said, help us, here's how they worded it, help us understand how to get out of what the Bible says about sexuality and gender. So this would have been like 1990-ish, something like that. And Barrett was looked a little shocked at the question. He looked at me and said, well, you, you can't get out of what it says. It says what it says. The only question is whether you believe it. Well, I was an evangelical, biblical Christian, and I, I was already pretty, I had gone through my testing and come down and decided the Word of God is perfect, it's beautiful, it's true, it's honest, it's honest. That's the best word. It's honest. The Bible is honest. And so I just wanted to ask a question. I didn't mean to be combative. I was just asking, what do I do if I, I asked, what do I do if I can't accept what it says? Uh, but I didn't mean that in a combative way, but he thought I was challenging him. And he looks at me, and he's like, he's holding a glass of tea, this English tea, and he puts his tea down, and he furs his eyebrow, and his glasses drop to the end of his nose, and he says the Christian faith isn't open for negotiation. And that's always stuck with me. But here's the deal. We either get to pick what the apostles teach us, or we can pick a different religion. But you really can't pick both. I was in Tanzania a couple of years ago. We were talking about the book of Jonah. Here's an interesting thing. Um, in Tanzania, they experienced things like being swallowed by a big fish. They believed that part. That part was no problem. <laughs> See, in their culture, that worked perfectly, in that African culture. The part that didn't make sense is why you would go to a village that had destroyed your family yeah. Yeah. and offer them forgiveness. That's, right. That's the part they could... And they, so they actually were playing the exact same game North Americans play, just the opposite direction. They were all for the miracles because they see miracles all the time. They really do. Shadanke has raised the dead. Yeah. I don't know if you all know that. To go tell Shadanke we can't believe in miracles. That's right. Somebody go tell Shadanke that. I'd, I'd love to be there when you do that. <laughs> As my friend Jerry Trousdale says, nobody comes back from Africa a cessationist. <laughs> nobody does. When you come back from Africa, you will believe in miracles. So they were fine with that part. It was the social justice part they couldn't accept. Yeah. And that's why I say again, progressivism tends to be a white elite North American phenomenon where we measure by our experiences, our sentiments. Our sentiments say miracles can't possibly happen. Which, by the way, that's even nonsense in North America. That's right. yeah. Even in North America, we know better than that. I mean, that's why every other movie is about angels and whatnot. Yeah. We actually, inside of us, we know it. Um, but it's easy to dismiss the parts that we don't like and then embrace the parts that affirm, and this is the language, our self inspired sentimentality. I don't experience gender a certain way, so therefore it must not be a certain way. I don't experience this a certain way, so it must not be that way. Well, as um, uh, one well-known author whose name I should know said, <laughs> David Young. <laughs> oh my goodness, I just lost his name. G.K. Chesterton, thank you for nothing. But I should have said, oh, it must be Chesterton because everybody calls Chesterton. He says, worship a crocodile on your street. Worship some hippopotamus. Worship any animal you can find, whatever animal you can find. But if you worship Jesus, give up all that looking inside and start looking up and do what he says. That's good. 
And that's what, that's really how we, we need to acknowledge that either, listen, about Paul, about what the apostles gave us, if Paul didn't know what he was talking about on sex and gender, if Paul didn't know what he was talking about on the fate of Israel, if Paul didn't know what he was talking about when it came to the lostness of humanity, why in the world would you believe what he says about grace? <laughs> grace is a Pauline doctrine. Jesus never uses the word grace. Are you aware of that? There's no red letter that uses the word grace. If you want grace, you have to go to Paul. The very Paul that progressives say, don't listen to that guy. So either Paul was a liar, in which case you ought not follow him, or he is what he says he is. He said in 1 Corinthians, remember the 2 Corinthians, chapters 11, 12, and 13, he literally says he went to heaven and discussed his gospel with God. So I'm just thinking God surely would have said, Paul, hey, stop getting that gender stuff wrong. <laughs> Man, you're going to screw up generations of people. I need you to get that one right. Paul literally says, I, I went up there. I talked to him about it. I, everything I got, I got straight from Jesus. Now, you can reject that. You can just say, I don't, I don't want to do it. By the way, that's actually, there's some integrity in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a, uh, I'm on a roll. The preachers come out. Come on, man. <laughs> you want to preach a preacher here now. So, um, some years ago, I had a friend who was a highway patrolman in the state of Missouri. He wasn't a Christian, and I went out, everybody took turns going out, and I went out and took my turn. Why aren't you, uh, why aren't you, why don't you, he gets to the church, he's at church every Sunday, he's more Christian than half the Christians. <laughs> His wife's a Christian, all this. So he said, oh, he said, easy. He said, the reason I'm not a Christian, he picks up a Bible. This literally happened. It's not a preacher's story. Because half of what we do. <laughs> As I said in my church, a preacher needs numbers like a fish needs a bicycle. So he picks up a Bible and he says, the reason I'm not a Christian is because I believe everything this book says. Wow. That's what he said. And I said, what? Say that again. He said, yeah, I believe what it says and I just don't want to do it. And I thought to myself, there's a man of integrity. Because in a lot of Christian expressions, it is, I'll take the book, but I'm going to pick the parts I like. There's no integrity in there. The, over 700 times the Bible uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord. The same phrase that says, don't commit sexual sin, thus saith the Lord. In the very next sentence says, don't take advantage of the poor, thus saith the Lord. Now, which, who has the right to say the second one really was the Lord, the first one, that's not the Lord. As I said, in Tanzania, it's just the opposite. So, or as uh, Renee said at Renew the other day, so one of our ministers on staff, her friend ministers in China, she says her friend has told her in China, the honor culture of China, um, you don't always tell the truth because it's considered rude. Like, if you ask me how you look, think about it. It's like a loaded question. So I say, you look, man, you look fantastic today. And so she says over there, the hard thing is to, they, they're good on sexual purity. They've been living that way for generations. But truth is really hard on them because, it, because it's a dishonor to speak the truth to people. In Egypt, forgiveness is hard. Justice is the important thing, but forgiveness is hard. So they look at the Bible and say, well, the forgiveness stuff, we don't have to worry about. That was culture. That's just culture. So I want you to see everybody's playing this game. We get to pick which verses. In North America, it's just called progressivism. Yeah. That's enough. That's pretty good. So I'm going to intensify it a little bit. Oh, it could get more intense? Well, I'm going to tell you what I mean. So there's a personal level in which this is played out, and then there's uh, the, the local church level in which this is going to be played out. But let me tell you a quick story. Uh, I had the honor, as hell, but it, to have a young man first come out to me 
about homosexual tendencies. So if you've ever had that experience, hands sweaty, shaking, rocking, very nauseous, it was an intense experience for him. I've actually experienced that four times. And uh, this young man finally got it off his chest and said, listen, I'm, I've been a raised Christian, but you need to know this is a tendency of mine. This is what I feel. We prayed, received the, that um, from him, and really the rest of the evening he just kept saying, I can't believe we're, we're good, we're okay, you're okay, you, you still love me. We, we can still um, move forward together in our discipling relationship. And I said, you know what I would like you to do? I want you to talk with your parents about this. You know they love you. He said, yes, I also know that they have been church going to, and I'm afraid of what that response would be. I said, I want you to trust them with it. So he goes back and he tells his parents, the first, I mean, this is in the first interaction after he tells his dad. His dad says, you know, I think we've, we've probably been reading the Bible wrong, man. He said, we, we could just be reading the whole thing wrong. And I, I'm sure there's more space than what we've, we found in probably misinterpretations. So he comes, Trevor, the one who, who, who uh, came out to me first, comes back and he said, this is what my dad said. And I was floored, stunned. Um, to think that now, instead of addressing this issue, instead of addressing what his son has said, he goes and actually now starts questioning the authority of the apostles. Right? So now it's we're going to turn to questioning the authority of the apostles. And then let's talk about it. Now I'm going to pitch both of these to you on the local church level. And so, as you know, Murfreesboro will soon be receiving a church that prides itself and is advertising as an LGBTQ plus community. And that will affirm and welcome that community. Others of you probably have the cities where you've been experiencing that or, or have experienced it. In this write-up, this is just in our local uh, newspaper. Given the atmosphere of our country, it doesn't feel like there's enough safe places for that community, this uh, female pastor said. So we will be the place. She said we're, it's, it's not just for LGBTQ+, but it will definitely be affirming of that lifestyle. So kind of buckle up. Um, so I want to pitch both of them to you. You've already talked about why and, and really, really why we would stand on the authority of the apostles, but what's the interaction like for Trevor's dad? And what's the interaction like for this church now that will be coming into our community? Okay, well, I've got a lot of things to say, but I'm going to bullet point them. That way I don't drag us out too long. Now, here's the first thing that we want to say. Um, first thing to say is, I think most of us, we need to reconsider the whole culture war thing. Um, the, the, and so I'm a sexual sinner. I am personally a sexual sinner. Um, but I also have other sins. And what I really need is love. I don't need you to tell me it's okay to keep sinning. I, don't, like I, I need that just like an addict needs more cocaine. But what I do need is for you to say, alright, let's start where you are. And let me, let me walk with you and Jesus and let's see what happens. Now that's what I, I still need that. I mean, look at my weight. I've got problems. I've got a, not an eating disorder. I'm just, a, I'm just unhealthy. So I, I know the truth on that, but I would love to have people who walk with me and say, hey, let's, let's work this out together. Telling me it's okay is not a good answer. Don't tell me it's okay. It's not okay. I'll die 10 years younger if I don't get a handle on it. It's not okay. But at the same time, oftentimes when I'm in the middle of it, I don't see it. The brain is a slippery thing. I justify myself, I lie to myself, I trick myself, I play games with myself. Sometimes I need somebody who loves me enough to enter into my life and give me some time to, to walk with Jesus. 
the culture war generally cuts that off. It cuts yeah. off that opportunity. Now, I used to be a culture warrior, so I, it's hard for me to say these words because I felt like something was being robbed from North America recently. But at the same time, my number one priority is not to make America great again. My priority is to win every person who will listen to Jesus Christ into the kingdom of God. That's my priority. Amen. Amen. So I want to think about everyone who comes into my community as this is a person who needs the gospel as much as I do. So I'm going to enter the law. I'll give you one quick story. You know this story. And I think I even reported this. Okay, we had a, you were involved with this story. It's a, one of our best stories. We had a couple that had a bunch of kids and so forth. And they were, it was a, it was a, they just had a lot of issues. We reached them through some door knocking. They, this guy's knocked on 10,000 doors in our community. I'm not making that up. We made him do it before we would hire him. He's <laughs> not making that up. <laughs> We just wanted to know he was courageous. And uh, he literally got a suntan knocking doors and invited people to church. We ran, we ran into a couple. They had a lot of issues. I can't name them because we're recording. A lot of issues. Let's just put it this way. She became a prison minister for five months of her life. From the inside. After we, after we baptized her. So we found them and we took them as they were. Matter of fact, not only did we take them as they were, we had them up reading scripture like on day number two. And these guys were not us. They weren't Christians. They were, And so what we said was, we had to make a quick decision as you often do. Are we going to tell them up front, you've got to do this, you got you can't live together like this, you can't do this, you can't do this, your kids can't do that, you've got to stop this. Or are we going to walk a loving journey with them and let them see Jesus? We chose the latter. Even though we were nervous about it, is this the right decision? Oh my goodness. We have baptized eight people now in that family, including jailmates, sons, friends. They are actually, at one of our campuses, they are the bedrock family. And we got to marry them too. Wow. I mean, it's like, and, and by the way, for the first time in her life, she can get a driver's license because she can turn in her social security number, which she could never do before because of all the warrants. It's behind her. Her life's fantastic. And, and, and I love that family to death, the Coxes. They don't mind my saying this. But we could have killed them up front with the culture war. We just could have. We could have cut it all off at the beginning. And we and we don't want to cut anybody off. So we want to be, as Shadonke, I want to say first and foremost, I love you. And I will walk with you. But I'm not going to tell somebody it's okay to keep living in sin. It's not. It's not okay. And the second, one other thing I'll say, the greatest social injustice, the greatest social justice issue in America today is the sexual revolution. How many fatherless children, Judge, do you see in the course of a day? How many cases do you get in a week? What's an average caseload in a week? Uh, 120 a day. 120 cases a day. Y'all knew that, right? That's what that's uh, our criminal justice system today. How many fatherless young men will you see? I mean, I, I used to do, I, I do most of the criminal court now, I used to do civil court, child support. Yeah, almost every one of them. So every, and I think in, I mean, Wake County, I think they've got 25, 26,000 child support cases. Probably 22,000 of them are um, there you go. fathers. So ask yourself the question, what does it do to a culture 
when you build a system that says it's okay for me to go have sex with her and then abandon her and that baby. Because that's, I'm not trying to go overstate it, but that is a deliberate strategy by progressivism in America. Mm -hmm. That's not an accident. That's mm -hmm. a deliberate strategy. I think you stretched. Pardon? I think you stretched. I think the issue with fatherless children in prison, and I'm a progressive in the room, so I'm trying to be quiet because I don't identify with everything you said. But I think the issues with fatherless, fatherless children in court and the, the problem we have in the prisons is a, the social injustice in our systems and systems of discrimination and opportunity and intentional constructs in society to keep our African-American population where they are so that they can't progress. And I struggle with a corollary of sexual freedom somehow created the situation this guy sees in his courts. That's a dangerous false correlation is all I'm saying. Sexual revolution had nothing to do with those no, guys I'm that are in court that. I'm at all. I'm glad you said that. And I want to be kind. But wow, I could not disagree with you anymore on the sexual part of it. Now, I do think discrimination has created a disaster. And I also think that um, well, I, the civil rights movement was a much more serious social injustice. So I'm not trying to dismiss that. But a system that encourages sex is a superglue. When we tell people you can use a superglue any way you want to, people get ripped up. But and I we probably shouldn't argue in here, but I want you to have your voice and I and I don't want to I don't I'm not trying to pounce on you. And maybe I am overstating it. I don't you obviously you know I don't think I am. Um, man, fatherless children, broken hearts, abandoned families, all of that was a deliberate strategy. It I mean it didn't just happen, it was someone said, let's do this. Let's create this system. And so I, I do think we're living with the devastating results of the sexual revolution, which was a progressive strategy. But let me let you have the last word on that. Well, I mean, it's the wrong form, but I would, I would argue that I'd go back to the 1880s and I'd go through the Jim Crow era and have an argument around what's created the situation we have today and the byproduct is sexual promiscuity and drug addiction. That the source of the problem is discrimination, post-Civil War, um, depression era politics and the Jim Crow policies of the 50s and 60s as why we had the situation with father, fatherless children's children and a lot of the issues in society and that progressive Christianity is a totally separate issue from what created a lot of what we just described. I'll give you the last word and I actually have you're very respectful, thank you. I bet it's hard to sit and listen to me. <laughs> All right, I'll take the beating I deserve. Thank you. Keep the, keep, go, keep the conversation going. I'll probably say what you need to say. What's the answer? I mean, we're talking about all the problems. What's the answer? That's a good question. I mean, why are we talking about problems? Why are we talking about solutions? Well, that's where we're going. So the, the next He's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him. Well, the next question tees that up. So let's think about this in terms of, we're at a discipleship.org conference. Mm -hmm. Everybody, let's all together, what's the answer? Discipleship. Right? So, but let's frame it. So within this context, where we know, like John the Apostle, and, and when we've had these conversations leading up to today, I like to, to frame it this way. John the Apostle knew he was for something, and John wanted his people for something. But he had to be mindful of what? Docetism? Gnosticism? Right? If he wasn't mindful of Gnosticism and what was happening and how it was going about coming into the church, uh, then he's not really doing his job all that well. 
So in the framework of discipleship, and I'm going to pitch this back, but first let me say this. As a, uh, as a millennial, I prayed a, a, amongst a group of three or four other millennials for a Paul-like figure in our own lives, knowing that's the answer. The answer is going to be somebody who's able to instill the truths of God's word in a relational environment, and we can walk those things out. So I'm praying that prayer. And not, but the next week, David Young says, hey, I'd like to meet up with you every Thursday for breakfast and walk through the scriptures with you and, and be in a discipling relationship with you. That's the answer. So we go and we're week in and we're week out working through the passages together. And he instills both what we're for and be mindful of the wolves in sheep's clothing. If we're not also warning as we're instilling the truths of God's word and, and, and encouraging and empowering, then people have blind spots. And David Young, out of love, doesn't want his congregation or, or, or me as one of his disciples to have blind spots. And so, uh, you know, to lay out what progressive Christianity is, what it's made of, and where it's going, he's equipping the church and all those he's discipling not to have blind spots. We all get the chance to do that. So John gave a litmus test. Let's, get, let's, let's go to this. Uh, John would say, test the spirits, right? He, he said, ask. Ask pointed questions. Ask probing questions and test every spirit. There are false prophets. Uh, everything needs to be tested. So let's talk a, a little bit about that. Within the framework of discipleship, you're already doing it, but you equip. That, one more thing. One, one more thing. Uh, as, a, as a millennial looking now at what the real problem is and what we're needing, let me just be honest and say confidence is needed. A assurance is needed. So as somebody who is looking to David for guidance and for um, spiritual maturity, I need to see confidence. Uh, one of the great takeaways from the last year of being on his team was uh, <coughs> a part of a sermon where he says, hey, if I'm the last man saying this, if I'm the last one on the earth teaching these biblical truths as we come across them in the authority of the apostles, so be it. And if someone is, is, is posted to, to ultimately oversee that or, or is dragging me away, I'll preach them while I'm being dragged away. You know, but a, a total undying confidence on the apostolic authority and on the word of God is, uh, is really what's needed. It's a huge part of the solution. And it's been part of the solution in my own life. So I, I came out of, out of university uh, apostolic in nature. I think that we were biblical and orthodox. But once stepping into culture and realizing as a 28-year-old minister, there's going to be some lonely times talking with other 28-year-old ministers. You know, I, I wanted to get together, so I got together with about seven around my age in the same field, and here the conversation goes very quickly to what, how, how fast can we start installing women elders in our church? Or how fast can we begin seeing women preachers? How fast can we have somebody on staff who's from the LGBTQ plus community? I felt very lonely. Very lonely. So part of the solution was the confidence and the assurance that he offered on the apostolic authority teaching of God's word. The other part is a sense of community. Uh, because I know progressive Christianity becomes an alternative very quickly for somebody who feels lonely. And who says, if I can be plugged into a sense of, of community, I'll find it. So enter Renew Network and other, other communities, but talk a little bit about that. What's being offered that says you don't have to be alone? Uh, feeling like you are is so very dangerous. Uh, when you're studying the scriptures alongside other people. Well, let me say this first. Um, it feels like in North America, it feels like the whole world is becoming progressive. Uh, you know, almost every day it's like, oh, here's another posting of somebody that's kind of 
and you used to think they were this way, or many churches. I've been talking this week to um, someone from a big church I've had some involvement in, and um, they were just saying that their their leadership is starting to send all kinds of signals that don't sound like the Christianity they grew up with, and they're all concerned about it. And they were like, is everybody going progressive? And the first answer to say is, well, a lot of people are in North America, but the first thing to say is, biblical Christianity has never been stronger than it is today. This is the strongest it's ever been. There are almost 400,000 Bible-believing, 400, 400 million Bible-believing Christians in Africa. Every day, 10,000 people are baptized in China based on scripture and on what we would consider to be apostolic Christianity around the world. So this number, um, Shinaki was sharing this number with us the other day. Listen to this. In the last 14 years, more Muslims have become biblical Christians than in the last 1,400 years, times 10. And they're all getting there through the scriptures. I mean, none of, they're not reading progressive authors. In fact, if they were reading progressive authors, there'd be no reason to become a Christian. Not really. I mean, you might adjust, you might take some of uh, progressivism values and so forth, but you don't actually need Jesus in progressivism. These guys are responding to the Bible. I mean, it's, it's sweeping the global south, sweeping the global south by the hundreds of millions. So where we tend to think, oh my goodness, you know, our churches are in decline, the cultural Christianity is dropping out in North America, which which is maybe bad for North America, but it's, it's really good for the church. Right? It's good when the church has to make a decision. It may not be all that great for America, but we'll see. God's in charge of that. So the first thing to remind ourselves of is actually those who want to belong to apostolic Christianity, you belong to a massive community of people. Hundreds of millions stronger. Hundreds of millions stronger. It's deceiving uh, when me media has taken a progressive bent to think otherwise. That, that, yeah. that, that there's more to that than there is. And you also need to know, so it was, uh, it was uh, uh, Ed Spencer, who, is, who was with Lifeway Research for years and years and years, and now is on the faculty of Wheaton University and Missions and World Evangelism. Stetzer published an article in the Washington Post last year. Unless they change their direction, mainline Protestantism in America will cease to exist in 23 years. That's how much time the PCUSA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, Episcopalianism, Disciples of Christ, that's how much time they have left before they totally disappear. Listen to this number. In, in uh, 1860, when the, just before the Civil War, American Civil War broke out, almost one out of every three Americans was a Methodist. Almost a third of all Americans were Methodists. That's a pretty phenomenal number. If you're Methodist, it's something to be proud of. Today, less than 1% of Americans are Methodists. So about 10,000 Methodist churches have ceased to exist since the 1960. This article just came out. So we are in a Church of Christ, which is uh, a twin sister to the Christian churches and kind of a distant cousin now of the Disciples of Christ. This article just came out. Um, Jeffrey Watson uh, on the, uh, so what's the name of it? Can the, Christian, can the Disciples of Christ outlast a decade? Membership in the uh, Disciples of Christ dropped 17% since 2004. By the way, if your investments dropped 17% since 2004, you would need to get a new CPA. Um, the average attendance now in a Disciples of Christ is 139,000 people. Excuse me, I shouldn't say average. The average Sunday attendance is what I'm trying to say. Less than 140,000 people now show up at a Disciples of Christ church. All of them combined. 
In other words, on any given Saturday, almost as many people go to a UT football game as are in the entire Disciples of Christ denomination. It's a total freefall. You need to know this. Liberal denominations are in total collapse, total freefall. They're not going to survive. So it is worth remembering that where it looks in North America, so, oh, my favorite author just posted something that's going progressive. You know, my favorite pastor just, oh, my goodness. It looks like everybody's going progressive. The truth is actually the opposite. The whole world's coming to the Bible. All over the global south, they're coming to the Bible. So you do belong to a large community. That's one reason, and so Dave Clayton said this somewhere. I've been with Dave at like three conferences in the last couple of weeks, so I can't remember which one it was. But Dave just made the observation that we need to be aware of the fact the center of Christianity is no longer North America. We're almost irrelevant. The center of Christianity is in the global south. So I'm looking for partners in the global south. This is an answer to one of the questions. Find partners in the global south. Those guys are on fire. They're on fire. In fact, uh, we, we travel, uh, one of my elders and I travel, and my wife, we, we're going with Shadake back to Sierra Leone Monday, and uh, and we've kind of been working on a possibility of a partnership there, that in so many places there's a community for us. So you know, for example, in the Anglican Church now, there are many Anglican churches, renewal movements in all the mainland denominations. Many Anglicans are now placing themselves under Nigerian bishops. because. Because the Nigerian Anglican Church tends to be very apostolic. Yeah. I mean, they got problems, we got problems, everybody's got problems. Uh, but their, their whole reasoning is we know there's still a community like us, and it's actually exploding, it's growing. So I would find, as he says, a community of people, and they're all around us. Um, we also need to educate ourselves. We need maybe to inoculate ourselves. You need to be aware of what's happening. And that's one reason why I wrote this. And I want to put another name up there. Uh, there's a blogger here in Franklin. Uh, you need this name. So um, here's what I am. I'm an old white guy who has a degree from 19-something, 94. <laughs> and I'm not all that engaged with what's going on today. So uh, Bobby asked me to write this book, which I did. But I think if you look at my book, you'll think, wow, you know, that, that was a really good article, article argument back in 1994. Um, so. Uh, Elisa Childers is blogging right now in Franklin, she's in Franklin, by the way. She is. So Elisa was, uh, you all remember Zoe Girl? Mm -hmm. ever? Elisa was Zoe Girl. Oh. And uh, now she's blogging and she has fantastic material. It'll help stay, keep you current with what progressive Christians are doing. So just stop America. Yeah. That so just about uh, <laughs> that was smooth. What? what? <laughs> just about four days ago, uh, in this blog, which yes, elisachilders.com, she interviewed uh, Chelsea Vicari, who Chelsea is another uh, woman who's interested in following up with progressive Christianity, keeping in, in touch, and then being able to equip the church and inform the church. So the, these two women working in tandem, she interviewed Chelsea Vicari because Chelsea went to. Uh, the Wild Goose Festival, which if you're if you're wide-eyed about that, then it's a, it's a leading event, kind of a music festival is the way to think about Woodstock in a sense, for progressive Christians, where the newest thoughts are rolled out and um, it's speaking, music, other activities. And so you could go back and find a, a Lisa interviewing um, Chelsea about, actually she, she calls this, Chelsea's blog, five distorted teachings that she encountered at the Wild Goose Festival. Constantly keeping you in the loop on what's current with progressive Christianity and what's been coming out and what activities are being posted. I'm tossing it back, but let me, let me say this. Um, part of the 
solution. I like the way that you asked the question. What is the solution? Discipleship is going to be the solution that we all, I, hopefully after leading a conference like this, we just keep drilled at. If there's an issue, discipleship. You're encountering more issues, discipleship. I'm walking with people, teaching the truths, and not teaching, but I like this word training. Training to obey. Training to see life transformation is the answer. There's an, also another answer, and that is um, the gospel speaks to these things. And there are ways in which progressive Christianity is being driven that the gospel really speaks well to. So this is what we're going to talk about next. How can we, as a, as a church, how do we representing different tribes, come in with the gospel where progressive Christianity is being driven and really answer well and, uh, and, and offer some satisfaction? Okay, so, well, let, let me, I have to put a little pitch for Renew. So one reason why we started Renew.org was to give a tribe of people who want the best of biblical teaching, not, not the nitpicky. Um, so uh, I think that in my tradition, there's been a whole lot of nitpicking on irrelevant things. That's my opinion. You don't have to share that opinion. But what if we reclaim the best of New Testament teaching? Renew.org gives us that opportunity with a mission of making disciples. It also, it also keeps uh, keeps you connected with the Global South that David was talking. So Sudan right. is in right. Renew.org co-founder. Uh, uh, actually, we have quite a few in the Global South door. So let me say, right. let me also say this. So uh, I I don't know if I'm an evangelical or not. I think I am not politically, but I think I am socially. I think I, probably most most of us would be considered that. Um, and we have reason to be uncomfortable with the language. So, but let me just say this, evangelicals, walk with humility. Walk with humility. Because it's very important to ask the question, why would Jen Hatmaker change her mind about sexuality? The question isn't just, oh, I wish she hadn't done it, and what can we do about Jen Hatmaker? That's not the question. The more important question is, why did she think this way? What happened in her, her life? And how, did, how can the gospel get behind what we saw and actually address what's going on in the hearts and souls of people? And that actually requires humility and love. And um, I think I'm a, um, I don't know how it's come across. I'm, I'm a revivalist preacher, and so I think I come across as loud and noisy sometimes. I have to work on that. But at the end of the day, if you don't think there are problems in the Bible, you just haven't read the Bible yet. There are a lot of problems in the Bible that even we evangelicals have difficulty with. Violence in the Old Testament is a problem for everybody. How the canon came together is not just, it's not just an issue for progressives, it's an issue for all of us. First of all, we need to practice some humility. And that's why I say as much as I was raised in the cultural era, I'm not sure that's the right direction anymore. I think it's humility and love charity and a charitable disposition and a willingness to, to get into people's lives and realize well, what is driving this and if, if we believe the gospel what's driving all of it is the brokenness of humanity and so if the gospel has something to say it has something to say even to people that don't agree with us so I would say that and um, I would also say reclaim the scripture and I would say so remember the early church, for four centuries, Christians were forbidden to go to the theaters because the church fathers understood you put enough of that stuff in your head, it's like the doppelfanger again, the, the effect, the uh, doppelganger, doppelfanger. <laughs> you know this thing, you put a false hand here, a rubber hand, and this hand, and you put a blanket over here. Y'all ever seen this experiment? Yeah. A fake hand, this hand, and a blanket over them. And someone starts brushing them, and you know what happens? Your mind will feel the rubber hand. 
It really will. I mean, it's a true thing. It ha actually happens. Because the mind starts to say that must be real. It has to be real. And in the same way, um, if you allow yourself godless forms of entertainment, godless music, godless stuff all the time, eventually that will become your reality. And then you'll be forced to adapt your faith to your new reality. So I would shut off some of the paganism. And um, you were waiting to say something, so I'm going to stop. No problem. I was going to tell a story in which that had happened. You talked about the gospel getting behind and really being able to address uh, the issue. So on another occasion, God comes out, says this is a homosexualized part of the story. And actually then entered into really tight-knit discipling relationships and soaked up, loved, devoted himself to the teachings of God's Word. Uh, about a year and a half later, told a, a social group, a group of friends at the university that this was an issue. And just like the dad in Trevor's story, the social group uh, leader said, man, we could be wrong. And we, we want to make sure that you know we could be, and, and, and we could be misinterpreting the scriptures. I couldn't believe twice in about two years, time period, this was happening again. And uh, I'll call him Frank as a pseudonym. Frank went up to the president of the social club, put his finger in his chest, and said, don't clean up the blood of Jesus for me. And, it, it, and it's always go that way. I understand, not every story is going to turn out that way. But when, when the gospel was behind in doing the work that the gospel can do in the Holy Spirit, everything about him was saturated in the love of Christ, in true atonement theology, all right, in Jesus as his sacrifice, as his substitute, and led him in a holy righteous anger to say, don't clean up the blood of Jesus for him. So it's just wasn't one conference story, I know, about uh, this This actually happening. As you said, the gospel can get in and behind uh, some of this as, as we're seeing it. Last words. I believe we're almost at the end of our time. And uh, maybe actually we move on if there's anyone that has a question. We have three minutes of time, so we can probably field half of a question. A question in three minutes? <laughs> yeah. We can go to two. So... Yeah, no, we've got a, we've got we've got time for a, a question or two. Does anybody have what you've been sitting on before we, we oh, uh, wrap up? Time. You're right, we have three minutes. <laughs> What's that? Sorry, you're I, 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 I missed miss the schedule. It's one forty-five. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> you're right. I was looking yesterday. Any uh, practical advice for engagement? You know, because you end up tending to well, they're different than me. I tend to isolate. How do you, do you need a team? Do you do it individually? Do you build one-on-one relationships? What's a practical way forward to engage in a culture that's different than mine? LGBT is a good example. Here's, here's the most way you know that works. Join in what's happening in the community. Don't create your own and expect them to come. So uh, if the church says we're going to throw an event and we expect a good turnout from the LGBTQ plus community, it's probably not, not going to happen. Um, but to but to go ahead and say, hey, where are these? Let me give you the best example. So where, right where I'm located, I just moved in, in set of house. There's a gym, and a pretty good influx of people come in and go, representing all kinds of different people from the community, play basketball. That's where the people are. I'm not asking him to jump a huge hoop to come to me, mm -hmm. right? So I'm playing basketball with some guys, and after shooting around a few rounds, I just ask, can I pray for you? Anything you don't have to pray for? The people that were receptive to it. I pray, we play again. Eventually, I think it was the next week, I ask, would you like to discover God for yourself in the Bible? The people that jumped in, um, one was uh, 
Buddhists did come from last 14 generations and nothing of the scriptures, nothing of, uh, of God as I was going to talk to him about it. I would have never been able to throw an event in and then show up, right? So the first and most practical thing is go, not come. Okay? Go, not come. Um, because there's a huge burden. There's a, there's a barrier you're asking them to jump. That's not the... That's not the gospel. It's just a culture barrier, and it's a little bit difficult for them to even attain you or, or access you. And so, um, go not come. It's probably the most practical thing. Any other questions? Love. Don't forget love. I mean, I know you mean this, but love. Yeah. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, no matter if they're Samaritan, Jewish, whatever they are. And, and just remember that what real love is, real love is the willingness to get in the middle of it and for redemptive purposes. And I would be remiss not to emphasize what Janaki said when he said, pray, right, pray and fast that the blind man would be, that the strong man would be bound. Mm -hmm. um, so God ahead, right? We're, we're going, not not just inviting, and our God is doing the heavy lifting and binding the, the strong man. Yeah, you know, when he said, yes, I'd love for you to pray for me. God's out front, and uh, we're receptive to the word of God. Yes. No, I was going to say, I'm not sure I fully agree that people are just picking and choosing scripture because I've, I've met some people that genuinely believe in the authority of scripture and have arrived at a different position. But I think part of that is because we've had some really unhealthy views of the authority of scripture and real orthodox evangelicals. And so I would be curious. I, I don't see a lot of healthy, good discussions about the authority of scripture. I see a lot of blanket statements thrown out there that I think are more hurtful than anything else. And so I'd be curious what you think about what is a healthy view or what's a healthy discussion of the authority of scripture and where do you, where do you see that being done? Um, well, we're out of time. And um, so let me say this. I, I will circle back around and say that it's really, it, humility is really important. It's evangelicals need to be humble people. In fact, humble, this is going back to something I said earlier. We were not biblical Christians on race. Progressivism was much more biblical than evangelicals were. And um, I mean, in, in, in the Nashville area, the same week we got up and declared some petite little tradition, we were trading slaves. And that tells you that, that's why I want to say humble, humble, humble. We need to acknowledge that we have done a lot of bad stuff. We've done, we've misunderstood it, we've misapplied it, we've distorted it, we've used it for our own purposes. But remember, as our judge can tell you, just because someone breaks the law doesn't mean you throw the law out. So if someone speaks to a school zone, you don't say, well, it looks like school zones don't work anymore. What you do is you say, all right, we're going to find this guy, we're going to take care of the victims, we're going to double down and make sure that people understand why the speed law matters, their life's at stake. So I would say the answer is not double down on the Bible. The answer is to say, listen, this, this will give you life. This will give you life. Follow this, it'll give you life, it gives you truth, it gives you honesty. And care for the victims that we've, whose lives we've messed up, because we have a lot of victims. And then also, make sure that, um, that we don't say throw out the law just because we can't keep it. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST 
to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.